Romans chapter 2. Turn there in your Bibles or bring it up on your mobile device or tablet, however you have the Scriptures here with you today. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and it is on the screen for us as well, and we will read it together as we continue through our current series, Agape, the Life and Look of Love in a Broken World. And we have moved, you maybe have felt this transition in the last couple of weeks, we've kind of shifted into more of a focused uh, mode of how do we begin to really live this? What does this practically look like in our lives? And last week we looked at our worldview and how the Spirit of God wants to reframe that so that we understand the context in which we are called by God to live this. And we've been looking at Romans. We've been spending a few weeks in Romans. Now, a lot of preachers and teachers will avoid Romans in such settings like this because Romans is such a dense letter. It is, it is probably some of the densest writing of Paul's. And last week, maybe you felt that as we were digging into it together. And I was, even as I was preparing for last week's message, I remember wrestling with how can I somehow juice this down in such a way that we can, we can take it in without feeling so overwhelmed. And even, even in all my attempt to do that, I know there was perhaps still a feeling of, boy, this is, this is a lot. And, and it is. Romans is a lot. But nonetheless, let it not scare us away from digging into Romans because some of the most powerful truth of the gospel is in Romans for us. And so it's worth, you know, the analogy I used last week of hiking and, and the, 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 the one of, I shared with you the story of one of my own favorite hikes in the area of our home and how often for many people uh, they they don't bother with it because it involves a bit of a brisk climb that gets the heart going. And Romans is like that. It involves some climbing, and we're like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. And um, so we, we avoid it, but it's worth the climb, and it's worth the effort if we dig into it. And so here we are in Romans again. And, uh, and so I just encourage us to, 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 to bite into this and to, uh, to allow the Holy Spirit to help us to take this in. Romans 2, 1 to 11. Let's read it together. It's on the, uh, the screen for us again this morning. Lift your voices with me, will you, as we uh, declare this together. And as it comes up. Oh, Hung, are you stepping in? Thank you. Just the... Uh, the click of the mouse, I think, will bring up the next slide. Or not. <laughs> well, let me begin reading it. And maybe as we're reading it, it will finally come up. Um, Romans 2. One, is it there? Okay, thank you. Thank you, Hung, for your gifted fingers on the mouse. Lift your voices, will you? And declare this... <laughs> this together with me. This is how I work it out. 
The sufferings we go through in the present time, hold, oh, hold on, this is not the right slide. This is from last week. We need to, but that's okay, Hung, I know you're trying your best. Thank you, Victoria's running to the rescue here. Thank you, Victoria. All right, let me read it for us. We're in Romans 2. That was our passage from last week. How many are still here? You're not confused? You're thinking already, yes, this Romans is very dense, isn't it? I'm just, I messed up already. Romans 2, <laughs> 1 to 11. Look at this together with me. Uh, listen closely, and maybe eventually it will be on the screen for us as well. Um, living the text, Victoria, is what you're looking for as far as title. Standing on truth, grace, and love. That's what we're considering today. Living the text, standing on truth, grace, and love. Paul says in Romans 2, verses 1 to 11, So you have no excuse. Anyone, whoever you are, who sit in judgment, you have no excuse. You have no defense. When you judge someone else, you condemn yourself. Because you who are behaving as a judge are doing the same things. God's judgment falls, we know, in verse 2, in accordance with the truth on those who do such things. But if you judge those who do not do them, and yet do them yourself, do you really suppose that you will escape God's Judgment, verse 4, or do you despise the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience? Don't you know that God's kindness is meant to bring you to repentance? But by your hard, unrepentant heart, you are building up a store of anger for yourself on the day of anger, the day when God's just judgment will be unveiled. The God who will repay everyone according to their works. When people patiently do what is good and so pursue the quest for glory and honor and immortality, God will give them the life of the age to come. Verse 8, but when people act out of selfish desire, and do not obey the truth, but instead obey injustice, there will be anger and fury. Verse 9, there will be trouble and distress for every single person who does is wicked. The Jew first, and also equally the Greek or the Gentile. And there will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, the Jew first, and also equally the Greek or the Gentile. And then verse 11, God, you see, shows no partiality. Now, that translation that I read is the Kingdom New Testament translation uh, that has been translated by Tom Wright, and that's why I, I was wanting us to read it together on the screen so that we would all be on the same page. 
Romans 2, 1 to 11. This chapter, as we dig into it, this chapter of Romans makes clear to us that no one has a secure, morally superior platform to stand upon. Paul says, no one has any excuse. You have no defense, those of you who think you are morally superior. Now, he's, he's speaking to the Jewish people. And remember, in Judaism, they, they were closer to the, the truth of God than the rest of the world, or namely, than the Gentiles. And the Gentiles in, in, in ancient Jewish parlance, or in the way they would talk to each other, when they would use the word Gentile, they were essentially saying pagans. And Paul is saying, don't think that because you are, are the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, sons and daughters of Abraham, because remember, they would often use that line. Remember, they used it with John the Baptist. And, and, and during Jesus' days of ministry on the earth, they would that we're sons of Abraham, we're daughters of Abraham. We're, we're, and they would say it with a sense of superiority and, and spiritual elitism. And Paul is saying, don't think that you have some morally superior platform just because you are Hebrew people. No one has excuse. No one has any defense to sit in judgment and look down their spiritual nose at anyone else. Now, we, we, we really grabbed onto this theme in our Jonah series. Remember that? Because Jonah was, was guilty of this very thing, this very attitude, this sense of superiority. I don't want to go to those pagan people, God. Why are you sending me to them? You know how they've treated us. They should be, they should be wiped off the face of the earth. But God, in His compassion and in His mercy, and in His grace, of course, calls Jonah to go. And we know that whole story. We've been there. But that attitude that Jonah had is what Paul's dealing with here as well amongst the Hebrew people. And amongst, it's an attitude that prevails, loved ones, uh, across the lines of all, all those who are, have been redeemed and are considered the people of God through redemption in Christ Jesus. We are all prone to this. To take some form of morally superior stance and platform and look down on others, those pagans in the world. Or perhaps sitting next to us. We're, we, can, we are all prone to this. And Paul says no one has a case. No one has a platform to stand upon in order to pronounce judgment or condemnation on others. Anyone, he's saying, who presumes to have such a vantage point is living in a dangerous fantasy world. Oblivious to the Gospel that levels all of us before a holy God. You see, Paul's point is that everyone should know better than to sin, but those with more access to the truth, namely the redeemed people of God, 
in Paul's context, the Hebrew people, those that have more access to the truth will be judged more strictly than those without such access. So Paul is saying, woe, beware to those who think themselves righteous by comparing themselves with others. Loved ones, aren't we so prone to this? The folly of comparison. What do we often do to make ourselves feel better? We compare ourselves with someone else. And it's a foolish thing, but yet we are so given to this. We have such a propensity for this kind of behavior in our lives. And Paul says, woe to those who think themselves righteous because they've compared themselves to someone else and they think to themselves, well, I'm certainly better than they are. Paul says the only measure of rule for us is to be Christ. No one else. In fact, I believe he gets into that in Romans chapter 4. We don't give ourselves, we don't make the mistake, he says, as the people of God, to compare ourselves with ourselves. Our only measuring stick is Christ. Woe to those who do otherwise. So Paul's warning here for us in the passage at hand should transform the way we think and relate and even debate and in particular when we do all of this as it concerns the homosexual community, which is the subject at hand that we've been dealing with. This is the chapter, Romans chapter 2, where more than anywhere else in his writings, Paul outlines his picture for us of the final day of judgment. There's a popular notion that has been prevailing, especially in recent years in the church, that supposes that judgment is an Old Testament idea. Whereas in the New Testament, you find only grace and mercy. That is simply fiction. We see grace and mercy all throughout the Old Testament. Now, those terms are not used. It's described more in the covenant love of God. We see God in covenant that term covenant is used. He cuts covenant with Abraham. And we see his covenant love displayed all throughout the, New, the Older Testament. That translates in the New Testament to terms like grace and mercy and so on. So the thought that there is no grace and mercy in the Older Testament is simply fiction. The New Testament does, of course, highlight the extraordinary, almost unbelievable love of God revealed in the death of Christ Jesus. Because Christ Jesus, as we learn, is the climax of that covenant of love that we see in the Older Testament. 
And Paul himself celebrates this later on in the letter of Romans. But this idea that grace didn't exist in the Old Testament, just in the New, is just nonsense. But if people insist on this, and they insist, Paul goes on to say in our passage, if they insist on rejecting God's love, and part of the logic of love, how many know this, part of the logic of love is that it can always be rejected. If it's truly love, that option has to be there. Love is not something that forces or manipulates or coerces. If I truly love God, I'm going to love Him because I've chosen to love Him. Not because He's forced me to love Him. How many know it's not love? So love, in, in, in its logic, is always something that can be rejected. But if people insist on rejecting God's love, Paul is saying here, there's nothing else for it. God is committed precisely as the good and loving Creator to putting the world to rights as we've looked at in these last few weeks. And that includes putting humankind to rights. Human beings. Those who live in the dehumanizing ways described in the previous chapter, Romans 1. You remember when we looked at Romans 1? And Paul breaks down all of these. Humankind gave themselves over to worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. They gave themselves to all of these uh, uh, completely abased ways of living and behaving. And so God gave them over to their own will and desire. We've looked at that passage together already, Romans 1, 18-32. And Paul says those who insist on resisting God's love, rejecting God's love, and instead give themselves to live in these ways described in Romans chapter 1, they're courting disaster. Those who persist in wickedness, despite having every chance to turn back to God, are positively asking for it, Paul is saying. So, the Older Testament and the uh, Judaistic religion agreed that only God's grace made possible repentance. And that's what Paul gets at in verse 4. Look at it again with me, verse 4. He says, Or do you despise the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience? Don't you know that God's kindness is meant to bring you to repentance? But that doesn't deny at the same time our own responsibility. God's kindness and His grace bring our hearts to a place of repentance before Him. Even that decision to repent is a gift of God's grace. The ability, our our will, our decision to do that is a gift of God's grace. 
And so then we say, well, okay, so it's I'm, I'm saved by grace alone. Hallelujah. That means there's nothing I have to do. Well, not altogether, Paul is saying. Yes, you are saved by grace alone. But there is still a life to live. As grace empowers us to live it. And so this picture of judgment that Paul gives us of not being people that feel morally superior or feel that we have some special in with God, special connection with Him. So He looks at us in a way that is you know, more special and elite than He looks at the rest of the world, that pagan, broken world out there. Paul says none of us have a morally superior place. And don't you know that we are all on level ground before a holy God? And don't you know that His kindness and His grace is is meant to to bring you to repentance? It's a gift of, 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 of His grace that you would repent. And then don't you know that as you repent before Him and, and receive the fullness of His grace and His redemption, that He is then seeking to empower you with that same grace to live a life of action and faith and kingdom works together with Him. So He declares that no one of us have any excuse or defense because He says even while you sit in judgment on these poor souls that are overtaken by darkness that you so despise, He says you are secretly doing the same things yourself in your hearts and lives. Now, of course, Paul does not imagine that every single person does every single one of these things mentioned in the second half of Romans chapter 1. You, if you read that again, you may say, well, you know, I don't, I, don't do all, I don't do all that. But there are things there that we are guilty of. The moral law is like a sheet of glass. If it's broken, it's broken. And all truly honest and wise and thinking individuals know that they, that we, break it again and again in one way or another. There is a God, beloved, who as Creator is responsible for the world and He will put the world to rights. He is redemptively determined to do that. And He will put humankind to rights. He is redemptively determined to do that. All of creation groans and will be put to rights. God is redemptively committed to that. And when He does so, He will act with complete impartiality as according to strict justice, rather. That's why Paul says at the end of our passage, 
For God shows no partiality. He shows no favoritism. He operates justly. There will be a last judgment, and it will accord with the totality of the life that each one of us have led. Now, that doesn't mean we earn anything. We don't earn our salvation. It's all a gift. But from that gift of grace is to flow works of righteousness. So, it's not that works no longer have a place for us who are people of faith and grace, but it's that works are to find their proper place in our lives, their proper sequence in our lives. We often get them backwards. We try to work and earn and work and earn, and we think, well, look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look how hard I've worked. God, you must have favor on me now. It doesn't work that way. God shows us grace and favor and mercy. And from that grace and favor and mercy is to be born work of righteousness that are done out of our love for Him. Sometimes Christians have imagined that Paul's doctrine of justification by faith that you read about in Romans 3 and 4 means the abolition of works and final judgment according to our works. But Paul nowhere ever says that. He never throws works out the window. And when God's judgment arrives, we seem to think it will leave all All of us on different planes. Some have good cases and good excuses and good defense and then others don't. But when God's judgment arrives, it will leave all of us without excuse. No one of us have any kind of moral ground of our own to stand upon where we can presume a posture of self-righteousness because look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished, God. You must be impressed with some of these things I've done. None of us have that kind of platform to stand on. The platform that lives by this idea of God, you know, God is kind and forbearing, and therefore He looks at my sins as merely slight offenses. Just peccadilloes. You know, uh, regrettable, no doubt, but not serious sins. Not as serious as your sins. Not as serious as those pagans we read about in Romans 1. Yes, I'm a sinner for all of sin, but I'm not as bad as they are. No, when Paul says, for all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that we are meant to know and live in. Paul says that such a stance 
really what it's doing is despising the riches of God's kindness and his forbearance and his patience. And so he says in verse 4, as we've already read, don't you know that that, that is to lead you to repentance? It's not to lead you... You don't if you if you operate in this self-righteous, proud way, you're it, it, it's like you're despising his his patience, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his patience, grace and mercy and kindness. Those are all things that are meant to lead you to repentance, not to pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. So Paul most certainly sees God here as mercifully allowing in his loving kindness space for people to repent. But he urges that all, all, everybody say all, all need to avail themselves to this opportunity. And that not to do so means despising God's patience and kindness and storing up for ourselves God's anger on that final day. That, that's why uh, prayer times like we had a moment ago where, where we all, before the Lord, in community, confess our sin before Him. Confess ways that we should have acted and didn't. Ways that we did act and shouldn't have acted. We confess that. It's important. That's a daily exercise and discipline for us. A spiritual practice. Because we realize that God is always extending such kindness and grace and mercy to give us space to bring us to repentance. And repentance is more than just a change of mind. It is that. But it's a change of direction in our lives that we will say, I will not live that way anymore. I won't go that direction anymore. I will go a new direction instead. I will go God's direction. So he emphasizes that judgment is indeed unveiled through the gospel. And this may come as a surprise to us. Maybe you're struggling with this right now. Well, I thought that, you know, we weren't saved by works. I'm not saying we're saved by works. I'm saying we're saved absolutely by grace and mercy. This is what Paul is saying. But works still have a place in our lives. How we live is still important. It's not all just this sloppy agape. Sloppy agape and greasy grace. Do you know what that is? Sloppy agape and greasy grace is this syrupy, sloppy, greasy kind of perspective on God's love and God's grace that says, well, I'm just saved by grace alone. So hallelujah, praise God. And we just go and live however we want to live. Because God's gra- it's all God's grace. Well, that same grace and agape seeks to empower us in the Holy Spirit to live the lives we are to be living as the redeemed sons and daughters of God. Are you tracking with me here? So there is to be a change. And the, the fruit and the works of our lives are to show forth that change. Not perfectly, of course. We stumble, we fall, we fail, and that's why we find ourselves in a regular position of confessing before the Lord as we did even earlier this morning. 
judgment is indeed unveiled through the gospel. And as surprising as it may come to us as modern readers for whom the gospel has come to mean salvation from judgment, but for Paul, the gospel is the announcement of Jesus as Messiah and the Messiah as we see all throughout the Older Testament, the prophecies, the Psalms speak of this, the Messiah was expected to be the judge at the last day. And as, the, as I said, the psalmist, they never tire of repeating this. Judgment, the, the, the putting of things to right, at last, is itself good news for those, the majority of the human race, past and present, good news for those who suffer injustice and oppression. So while one element of Paul's argument in Romans is indeed about individuals being shown up as sinners. It falls within his larger and greater theme. And that is this. The good news that in Jesus the Messiah, the one God of Jews and Gentiles, is finally setting the whole world to rights. To the surprise, again, of those traditional readings of this letter, leading them to expect that Paul will here simply declare that all are sinners so that justification can be by faith alone apart from works of the law. He announces instead, on the contrary, that at the last judgment, justification will be on the basis of works our lives will be judged by the Messiah who will repay, look at verse 6 again, who will repay everyone according to their what? Their works, their righteousness. So Paul quotes here more or less exactly from Psalm 62. Paul's often quoting from the Psalms. And you'll notice in your Bibles that that particular phrase is, is perhaps even in quotes, quotation marks, because he's quoting Psalm 62 and Proverbs 24, both of which in their context, if you look at them and read them in their own context, offer warnings against pride and self-righteousness, and see God's just judgment according to works as, and the, and the way it puts it in Psalm and Proverbs, is as their actions deserve. And this is an expression of God's redemptive power and mercy. Beloved, please hear this. As, as uh, peculiar and as paradoxical may sound to us and seem to us, even God's judgment is loving and redemptive. 
Did you hear that? He will judge. The Messiah will be our final and ultimate judge. But even His judgment is redemptive and loving and restorative. His justice is restorative. His justice is not to kibosh and and annihilate. And No, His justice is restorative. His judgment is loving and redemptive. He is a refiner's fire, Malachi talks about. Now, is that painful? Is fire not painful? Yes, of course it's painful. It burns. But it seeks in God, it seeks to refine us and restore us and redeem us. Are you seeing this? It's not a fire to destroy other than to destroy the sin and the unrighteousness within us. It's to redeem and restore. So please, please hear this. And I should have created a slide for it as I was just reviewing this message this morning. I thought I should have created a slide for this as well. Please hear this. For those who have really felt the force of divine redemption in our lives, the new life of Christ can only truly take shape in us as an intense longing to partner and to co-labor with Him in building His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, a desire to do good instead of evil. To do justice to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, and to, like Christ, serve in the least of these and thereby subversively do battle against injustice. What, what is all that talking about? It's talking about actions of righteousness. It's talking about good works. The grace and the mercy and the compassion and the redemptive force of Christ occurring in us, in our hearts and lives, in our souls, can only truly take shape in this form. And that's what Paul's saying. If those works don't show forth, has His redemption fully taken in our hearts and lives? And then he says, in the final judgment, as we stand before the Lord, as we all will do someday, it will be by this that, that we will be judged. And again, not for the purpose of condemning or casting away, but redeeming. Even then, God's redemptive heart, even in that final day, God's redemptive heart will still be moving on our behalf. What an incredible, beautiful benevolent picture of our God. To the very end, He is committed to us. Are you seeing this? To the very end, He is not giving up on us. Now, it's important for us to not jump too quickly into a a, a blanket condemnation of moralism at the same time. 
Our culture has a strong inbuilt prejudice against moralizing. We see that every day. I, I don't think that comes as any surprise to us. We see it every day. We see it on the news. We, we see it in the, in the world very evident around us. We, we much prefer a, a sort of uh, laissez-faire, tolerance. That's, that's, a, that's a popular word these days. Uh, tolerant, minimum interference with our, our personal freedom. We don't like anyone messing. How many know that? We've certainly seen that through these days of pandemic. Hello? Our human rights are being violated. You're making me wear a mask. Violation. You're making me keep a distance from my neighbor. Violation. <laughs> Haven't we felt this? We've heard it. Maybe we've even said it ourselves. We don't like our person, what we feel is our personal freedom being interfered with. I'll go where I want to go, when I want to go there, how I want to go. I'll wear a mask if I want to, or I won't wear a mask if I don't want No one's going to mess with my personal freedom. Hello? Have, you, have, have I been the only one living in this? or did you, Pastor, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. We've all felt this, especially in the... We don't like our personal freedom being messed with. The whole idea of, you know, this street-level idea of personal responsibility in right and wrong. We don't like to feel we have a personal responsibility in right and wrong and wrong in our lives. You know, the, the reduction of all morals has been... Basically, in our culture, it's been boiled down to do what you feel like as long as you don't hurt anyone. So, we mustn't be too eager to read Romans 2, our passage open before us this morning, as a denunciation of moralism and then to feel self-righteous because we are not self-righteous. Did you catch that? We feel self-righteous because, well, I'm not self-righteous. You are. I'm not. And so we feel self-righteous for not feeling self-righteous. And this is completely to miss Paul's point. So there are these, these two extremes that Paul's addressing here. Where the extreme that says, well, you know, it, it's, it's all by grace and Besides, I'm closer to God than some of you other pagan people out there, so I get special treatment. And so we self-righteously look down our nose. And, and, and then there's the other extreme where we are, are so given to this sense of moralism that, 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 that that's really the basis of our faith, not Christ. And so Paul says, no, it's, it's neither of these things in their extreme. We're called to live the text, to live the truth in the balance of truth, love, and grace. And that's a tension that is difficult for us to live with. 
It's a balance that is difficult for us to find. We are given to extremes. All of us, are we not? It's harder to walk in a balanced way, to live in a balanced way that that the Scriptures call us to, that Jesus calls us to, that Paul is calling us to here. Paul clearly believed that morals mattered to a culture and to a society and to persons and was not frightened to state what those morals were and how disregarding them brought disaster. He does that in Romans 1. He did not object to people holding or propagating high moral standards. What he did object to, hear this please, because this is what I'm trying to say in these last few statements that I've made. What Paul did object to was doing so, holding up a high, propagating a high moral standard while failing to practice that same standard yourself. What he objected to here in this passage, at least at hand, was the hypocrisy of denouncing faults that we see in others while secretly practicing them ourselves. Behind Paul's specific argument here, there stands this assumption. that Paul spells out in other places in his writing. He makes an assumption here as well that the Christ follower should be so open to the searchlight of the Holy Spirit that the dark corners of his or her life and the inner motivations are increasingly spotlighted and dealt with. Loved ones, where every day we come before Him and we say, Holy Spirit, would you examine me again today? You know my thoughts. Search me and know my thoughts, as the psalmist said. Know, know the intent. See if there be any wicked way in me again today. Examine me. Cleanse me. Thank you for your grace and kindness that brings me to repentance before you again today. Paul says, only then will authentic holding forth of standards of activity and behavior of righteousness be possible. Only then will one be able gently, lovingly, and firmly, not self-righteously, to articulate a standard of righteousness and to denounce evil. Beloved, belief in a final just judgment, as Paul explains to us here, is meant to be excellent news for our world, as it was for Paul's world. Of course, when this belief is downgraded into vague hopes for a better life hereafter in the age to come, and vague warnings about possible unpleasant consequences for wrongdoing, when we, when we juice this down to nothing more than, oh, well, it'll be better someday in heaven in the sweet by and by, so we'll just hold tight until Jesus comes. And so it, 
it breeds a passiveness in the way we live for Christ. And at the same time, we're saying, but those pagans out there, they're going to be, they're going to get it, boy. Boy, are they going to get it when Jesus comes. Hallelujah. Those homosexuals, those lesbians, boy, they're going to get blasted when Jesus comes. Praise God. And we take that kind of self-righteous posture when we will all stand before Him. And we will be judged together. So, we have no ground to artificially pump up into some sort of shrill hellfire denunciations and casual self-satisfied salvation assurance within ourselves. The clarity of the Christian view of judgment is altogether lost when that happens. And with it, both the moral imperative and the true hope of the oppressed. What Paul is challenging here in us today, loved ones, is our view of judgment. The fact that there is going to be one for all of us and how we understand that judgment. Rather than it being redemptive, traditionally it's been more self-righteous, denouncing the world, hellfire down on the world. Remember the disciples, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? That's been our idea, and Paul says that's not what this judgment looks like. It's redemptive. It's restorative. I mean, all we need to do, think about this as, as we conclude this morning, all we need to do, and for some of us this is closer to home than others because of the, the countries that we call home, all we need to do is look at Marxism. All we need to do is look at what's happening in parts of Asia and other parts of the world, in Africa even now. Marxism, which vividly pointed out projecting hope for a better life forward into the future can then be used by oppressors to keep their subjects, if not happy, at least not rebellious. That's what Marxism promoted. Now, does that sound like God? God is not a Marxist. God does not say, I'm calling you to righteousness. And just to make sure you live that way, please know that those who live that way are going to get to go to heaven someday. And so He holds out before us this glorious future in the hopes that at least, uh, at least if, we, if, if, if we don't live a happy life, we won't live a rebellious one. God does not oppress in that way. He is not a Marxist, but that's what Marxism showed us. And God is not like that. He is not like that at all. In fact, that's a, that's a parody, a caricature of Paul's teaching here. That's not what Paul's saying in this. But yet it's, it's been one that so much of the church has bought into. 
in its own folly and in its own undoing. Well, someday we get to go to heaven and we'll be saved from all of this. Jesus, I, I want to even leave today. I wish you'd come today. I want to get out of here. That's not God's purpose and plan and intention. It never has been. It's never been one of escapism. It's never been one of oppression in holding us to it, at least uh, living an unrebellious life. We might not be happy in doing it, but we won't rebel. It's never been like that at all. There is indeed here in this passage a promise that wrongs will be put to rights. And we're offered here in this passage a strong and sure hope that can sustain us who suffer oppression and injustice and all that we face in this fallen and broken world that we live in. But watch this, please. Please watch this. In Jesus the Messiah, this hope is not something future and far off that is yet to be. It is that. But it's also right now. This hope in Jesus the Messiah has come forward into the present now. Those who give allegiance to King Jesus, so far from being agents of oppression by reinforcing a vague future hope and thereby a passivity about how we live in the present, are instead charged with realizing God's justice in the present time in all ways possible, not least in being those who not only preach and profess this allegiance to Jesus the Messiah and Lord, but those who practice it. We must be determined as the people of God to avoid the folly and the danger of presuming on God's kindness and forbearance. To name the name of Jesus is to invoke that one to whom all, especially his own followers, will give an account. As Paul says in verse 16, which we didn't read this morning, but if you look at verse 16 of chapter 2 of Romans, that's what he says. So, now that we've set the table this morning together, how then shall we respond it, as His church to this challenging pastoral, political, and social reality of our time and culture? All of this, the, these realities in our time and culture of this broken post-Christian world that we live in. What is the life and look of love to look like in practical terms here in our congregation as a congregation of Christ followers? Stay tuned because we're going to begin to look at that in particular, particular ways that this is to look, that agape is to look and be lived here in our congregation as God's people. Would you stand together with me as Philip...